guess what I'd like to reflect on is the, the brave volunteers that sign up for these ALS clinical trials. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 87 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Tim Miller from Washington University in St. Louis about his research into therapies that target single strands of DNA, or RNA, which are the cause of many cases of the fatal disease, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as ALS, or Lou Gehrig's disease. Here's Tim Miller. Hi, my name is Timothy Miller. I'm a neuroscientist at Washington University in St. Louis where I direct a group focused on understanding uh, and finding novel treatments for neurodegenerative diseases, in particular ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, and uh, tauopathies or dementias. I began my scientific journey as an undergrad, and I was at the University of Virginia. I was uh, studying to have a chemistry major at the time, so I was interested in science. And for that particular summer that I was coming home, I, I needed to, to make some money. And, and for that summer, I was looking around for a, a number of different jobs and a number of possibilities came up. But the one that seemed most interesting to me was working in a lab at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm from St. Louis. I had grown up there. And I walked into this interview with a guy named John Cooper. And I said, Dr. Cooper, I, I really don't know much of anything. I've taken a little bit of chemistry, but I'd, I'd love to work in your lab this summer. He said, great, we'd like to have you. And I said, but I, I really don't know anything. I, I don't know what to, to do. I don't have any experience. And and he said, he said, great, we'd like to have you. And I must have reiterated a third time how little I knew. And, and he, he stopped me and he said, look, Tim, can you learn? Right? I said, of course. And he said, um, will you work hard? I said, of course. He said, you're hired. And so they were a brand new lab at the at the time. It was Dr. John Cooper and a graduate student and a technician at the time. And they took me in and helped me learn how to do science. And that summer just went really well for me. I loved doing the science. I loved the discovery process. I loved the thinking that went into it. I liked the interactions with the other people in the lab. And and I became hooked. I was I was jazzed up about science. And I went back to that same lab uh, for multiple summers. And I also worked there during uh, the winter break and ended up choosing or being chosen by, I guess a bit of both, at Washington University in St. Louis. Uh, and that's where I did my MD-PhD. Tim's research focuses on genomic therapies designed to treat ALS. And up to 2% of all cases of ALS result from the gene encoding superoxide dismutase 1, or SOD1. But the mechanisms by which the mutations in it cause degeneration of motor neurons in ALS patients aren't fully understood. So we started out our conversation with Tim by asking him what is known with regard to the causes of ALS. The vast majority of ALS is considered sporadic, or a better term would be singleton, which means that there's one case of ALS in that family and no other known ALS in the family. The other 10% of ALS is genetic or caused by a particular gene mutation, SOD1, part of this article is one of those gene mutations. Another gene mutation is C9ORF72, and that accounts for a much larger proportion of the familial or genetic forms, about 40% of the familial form, and up to 5 to 10% of people who do not have a known history of ALS in the family, so singleton ALS, have this genetic change as well. And then there are a number of other genes uh, that are relatively uncommon. 
that are associated with ALS uh, making up the, the remainder. So how do we know it's, you know, one to 2%, the way those studies work is to screen, you know, 100, 200, 300 people that are coming into clinic, and then to look at all of their DNA and see what percent of people may have this genetic change. Tim and his colleagues' research looks into using messenger ribonucleic acid, also referred to as mRNA. This crucial intermediary in the body's protein-making process may not be as famous as its cousin, DNA, though it's having a moment in the spotlight right now. This is because of its role in Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, which uses mRNA to teach the immune system to recognize and attack the virus. As we last talked about messenger RNA back in episode 34 with Mike Fagan concerning its role in decoding cancer's expression, Doug and I were interested in learning just how it's being targeted to treat ALS, a disease that may affect as many as five in every 100,000 people. The concept of using antisense oligonucleotides, uh, mRNA, uh, or sort of drugs that bind to mRNA and then cause the destruction of the mRNA, is something that has been a subject of research since the 1970s. And the application of antisense oligonucleotides, these mRNA binding drugs that then cause the destruction of, the, of that mRNA, had been typically in the periphery. That was the status of most of the research and most of the drug development of antisense oligonucleotides when we started in 2003 to think about how to apply this to the central nervous system. So the main challenge within the central nervous system, the brain and spinal cord, is to how to get a drug to the brain and spinal cord. So one important concept is the blood-brain barrier, and many drugs, when given in the periphery, so put into the blood, for example, don't get into the brain because there's a, a number of barriers which are protective for us that keep things from our blood from getting into our brain and spinal cord. And this is true for drugs as well. And so if you put an antisense oligonucleotide into the periphery, it will not get into the brain and spinal cord, not in any large amount. And so that, that was the main challenge as I started in 2003 with uh, this research at, at University of California, San Diego. And what we did was to deliver the drug to the cerebral spinal fluid, which bathes the brain and spinal cord. These are highly charged molecules. And if we had read the literature well at the time, the prediction would have been that these drugs wouldn't go anywhere, that they would not distribute throughout the brain and spinal cord. And the surprising, and now have been repeated multiple times, uh, empiric data uh, show that the antisense oligonucleotides do distribute throughout the brain and spinal cord, and in fact, penetrate deeply within the brain and deeply within the spinal cord. And it was that observation or that breakthrough that allowed us to use antisense oligonucleotides to treat neurodegenerative diseases. The first of its kind with this type of antisense oligo was for SOD1, showing that we could get good distribution throughout the brain and spinal cord, that we hit the target that we were supposed to hit. Uh, in our early uh, studies and models, and that we were able to change the disease phenotype in the animal models. And so that, that was the beginning of using antisense oligos in the central nervous system. And since that time, since that early work, there's really been a rapid expansion of the targets, so the mRNAs that are being targeted by antisense oligonucleotides, and the number of neurogenerative diseases that would benefit from this approach. While many neurological conditions lack effective treatments, as research progressively disentangles the pathogenic mechanisms underlying those diseases, Tim explored if antisense oligonucleotides, or ASOs, may offer possible therapeutic strategies to treating ALS. 
And as most of us have learned from the COVID-19 pandemic, the journey of a new therapeutic from foundational research through animal models and human trials, and eventually to wide-scale use, is typically neither easy nor quick. So Ryan and I wanted to hear about what was explored and learned in the study. The trial is using antisense oligonucleotides, which are RNA-targeted therapeutic or a drug that binds to RNA to reduce the levels of the protein SOD1 or reduce the mRNA and then the protein SOD1. So superoxide dismutase 1 or SOD1 is the gene, the mRNA, that we are targeting using the antisense oligonucleotides. And the overall goal is to reduce the level of a toxic protein that is known to cause ALS. And by reducing the level of this toxic protein, we predict that we would be able to slow down the disease in this uh, group of patients. Some of the primary outcomes is safety, tolerability. So is this drug well tolerated? And those involve a variety of measures to make sure that the drug is well tolerated and the people are safe uh, throughout the trial. The secondary outcome in our study was the SOD1 levels in the cerebral spinal fluid. So showing that we reduce the levels of that protein in the cerebral spinal fluid is key. That's a really important outcome. That's how we show that the drug is doing what it's uh, expected to do. And I think we, we met that, we hit that in this study. And uh, that's one of the things that I'm uh, most excited about. And then there were a number of exploratory outcomes focused on other biomarkers, uh, strength measurements, breathing measurements, and the ALS functional rating scale. ASOs are synthetic single-stranded molecules that can alter messenger RNA and can reduce, restore, or modify protein expression. They prevent protein translation of certain mRNA strands by binding to them in a process called hybridization, as Tim describes next. The antisense oligonucleotides are short DNA-like or RNA-like chemicals. They're modified on the backbone and modified at the two prime positions which increases the stability of, of these drugs in biological fluids, for example, the cerebral spinal fluid, and then increases their binding to the mRNA by Watson-Crick base pairing. So DNA binds to itself and uh, RNA can bind to DNA or DNA-like structures by Watson-Crick base pairing. So that's the way the double-stranded DNA uh, lines up uh, one uh, to the other. And the antisense oligos are delivered in the cerebral spinal fluid, and then they get into the cell by a mechanism that's incompletely understood. We have some ideas, but it's not clear. It gets into the cell, and once it gets into the cell, it then gets into the nucleus. And once in the nucleus, it then sticks to the, a specific mRNA. And I say specific because we've designed the antisense oligo to bind to a particular mRNA, to reduce the levels of that mRNA. And when it, when it binds to that mRNA, there's um, an enzyme in the nucleus called RNase-H. And that RNase-H sees the RNA and antisense oligonucleotide duplex and then destroys the RNA. And then the antisense oligo gets used again. So RNase-H is likely the enzyme that is important for clearing out the DNA of Okazaki fragments. So as DNA replicates itself, there's a lagging strand synthesis where there's small pieces of, of DNA with RNA in between, and then the RNA-SH would come in and clear out the RNA where there's DNA-RNA, and then that would be filled back in with DNA. 
So there's an endogenous enzyme in the nucleus that already degrades RNA. And by binding this antisense oligonucleotide to a specific mRNA, you cause the destruction of that specific mRNA. And once the mRNA is decreased, then the protein itself will fall or decrease according to the protein half-life. So if you're not making more protein, then the protein that's there will fade away. In their study, Tim and his colleagues' participants were assigned to one of four dose cohorts, 20 milligrams, 40 milligrams, 60 milligrams, or 100 milligrams of a drug called tofersin. These doses were delivered using lumbar puncture, which places the medication into the fluid of the spine, which clinicians refer to as cerebrospinal fluid. So Brian and I were curious to learn how introducing the drug in this fluid gets it to the targeted mRNA. We put the antisense oligo into the cerebral spinal fluid. So the um, brain and spinal cord are bathed with fluid that surround the spinal cord and surround the brain. And actually there are fluid filled spaces within the brain. So this fluid that bathes the brain and spinal cord is where we put the antisense oligonucleotides. And then this fluid flows throughout the brain and spinal cord. So it delivers it to all the regions. And the fluid is right beneath the surface of your skull. So between your skull and your brain is a, is a fluid-filled space that protects your brain as you move around. And the same thing is true within the spinal cord. So there's fluid on either side of your brain and spinal cord all the way around the bones and your skull. And then in addition, within the brain, there are fluid-filled spaces deep within your brain, right in the middle of the brain and actually all throughout. So the spinal cord ends about two thirds of the way down your back. And the spinal cord is embedded within circular bones. And then the nerves that reach your arms and legs, for example, uh, come out of small uh, holes within those bones and then form into peripheral nerves and then reach the muscles in your arms and legs. But the spinal cord itself ends about two thirds of the way down and then there's this bundle of nerves and we're able to access that fluid-filled space on the lower end of the back and put a needle into that fluid-filled space. So when you put a needle into that area, you're not going into the spinal cord, you're going into the fluid-filled space. It'd be like putting a needle into through a, you know, a pot of noodles or something. They're going to move out of the way, the, the nerves will. So they're not impaled by the needle at all. And then you can inject the fluid, which is where the, the antisense oligonucleotides are in, into that fluid-filled space. Tim's randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial included adults who had muscle weakness that had been attributed to ALS, and who also had a documented SOD1 gene mutation. The selected participants were then treated at 18 sites in the United States, Canada, Belgium, France, Germany, and the United Kingdom. We'll hear what he had to say about leading this complex international study after this short break. Thousands of conversations about scholarly content happen online every day. At Opmetric, we track a range of sources to capture and collate this activity, helping you to monitor and report on the attention surrounding the research you care about. Do you know who's talking about your research? For a free, visually engaging and informative view of the online activity surrounding your scholarly content, visit altmetric.com products. Now back to passing science. Here again is Tim Miller. A study like this is an enormous team effort. And there are many, many people involved and many moving parts. Biogen is the corporate sponsor of the study. And there's a whole team of people 
from Biogen and with a, a company that Biogen has hired to help manage and uh, recruit all of these sites. In, in general, when we think about clinical trials, we think about, you know, sites that have experience doing clinical trials and you know, are likely to have a, the correct patient population who are interested in participating, have the staff to participate. There's all a whole a number of criteria that, that we go through to think about uh, sites that are involved in terms of recruiting them and, and having them participate. And then once they sign up for the clinical trial, there's a ton of work to do to make sure that they're ready to go. Because as you can imagine for a thing like this, each person in the trial needs to do things the same way, right? If we're comparing people from United States and Europe at various doses and who may receive placebo or the drug, we need to make sure that our measurements, our readouts, our protocols are done in a similar way. So that is a huge amount of effort. The other you know, piece that goes into a trial like this is is the safety or the uh, regulatory oversight making sure that we keep the participants safe and that we're thoughtful about how we do the trial. Tim's article describes the research as a phase 1-2 trial. Such studies test the safety, side effects, and best dose of a treatment. They also examine how well people respond to a new treatment. And in the phase 2 components of the study, patients routinely receive the highest dose of medication that didn't cause harmful side effects in the first phase. Since combining phases one and two can allow researchers to work more quickly or with fewer patients, Ryan and I were curious where Tim's research fits into the development of new pharmaceuticals for this specific form of ALS. There's a lot of data that gets developed before a drug ever gets into people, and the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, has to sign off on that right before it can ever go to people in terms of the safety. So I guess the, the first point is, What's the science behind does this drug work and does it do what it's supposed to do? That's, you know, the, the first step. And that often would be uh, testing in animal models. The next step is to figure out safety. And there's a whole group of tests that need to be done before a drug is deemed safe to go into humans, to take that jump from animal models to humans. That requires an in-depth review process to make sure that that is safe for humans. I think that's a step that many people may be unaware of, but it's really important to make sure that the drugs that we're testing in clinical trials are safe. Then the next step is a phase one trial. In phase one is all about safety, often giving a, a smaller dose and then increasing that dose and looking for any side effects, any problems with the drug. That first trial is often not focused on changing disease course, for example, or, or focused on biomarkers. When we did the first trial of antisense oligonucleotides delivered into the cerebral spinal fluid in 2013, that was you know, really a very, very new thing at the time. And then from that phase one trial, we were able to gain information to use for this next uh, phase one, two trial. And then the next stage of clinical trials would be a phase two, or in some cases a phase one, two, but a phase two. And typically there, you're trying to figure out the right dose, trying to get some idea about efficacy. So it doesn't work to change the disease course. And then getting information about a biomarker. So you know, does the drug do what it's supposed to do in terms of changing markers that, that it's supposed to change? The stage after that, phase three, is really all about does the drug affect the, the disease? Though an eye on safety is key with each step along the way. 
And I guess what I'd like to reflect on is the, the brave volunteers that sign up for these ALS clinical trials. Health professionals and researchers require a host of skills when treating terminally ill patients, including those that address their emotional needs. So we followed up by asking Tim his thoughts on building and maintaining relationships between medical researchers like himself and the patients they are sworn through the Hippocratic Oath to treat with warmth, sympathy, and understanding. It's interesting when people think about dealing with and treating patients with a terminal disease and that that must be challenging or, or, or frustrating for the physicians involved. I think what happens is that most of us are drawn into taking care of those patients and are energized by their needs and are deeply committed to helping out that group of patients such that our own potential frustrations or challenges really pale in comparison to the, um, to the needs and what we're trying to do for that patient population. So I think um, it, it can seem like it might be challenging, but for most people, uh, we're really focused on helping out that patient population. A randomized clinical trial is often considered the gold standard for research that can lead to broad applications, such as new medications. But beyond the design of his research, Ryan and I were interested in what researchers outside of medicine might be able to glean from his approach to working on these groundbreaking treatments. One of the spaces I occupy is as a physician scientist. So I bring together both the medical training and medical world and the PhD and the basic science world. And kind of understanding and bringing together both of those is a key part of the work that we do and a key part of keeping what we do relevant to the patient community. I don't have great ideas of how to bring that broadly to other people, though for other scientists, there are many ways to, to see those links to human disease. And I would encourage graduate students and other scientists to try to help see those links. And when I talk to graduate students, I often remind them that the most likely breakthroughs in disease are going to come from the PhDs, just because there's so many more PhDs. And there's many PhDs that are focused on topics that end up being hugely important for medicine. And getting that perspective and seeking that out from those that may have it we think is a key part of the work that we do. That was Tim Miller discussing his article, Phase 1-2 Trial of Antisense Aglionucleotide Topherson for SOD1 ALS, published with multiple co-authors on July 9th, 2020 in the New England Journal of Medicine. You'll find a link to their article at parsingscience.org e87, along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discussed during the episode. Parsing Science also tweets news about the latest developments in science every day, including many brought to our attention by listeners like you. Follow us at Parsing Science, and the next time you spot a science story that fascinates you, let us know, and we just might feature the researchers in a future episode. Next time, in episode 88 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Ariana Long from the University of California, Irvine, about her research into the emergence of massive, dusty, star-forming galaxies, which developed billions of years ago. So what we really want to do as astronomers is we really want to push back the age at which we can study these protoclusters, so baby galaxy clusters, and really try to capture that moment in time 
when they're forming most of their stars, when the clusters are actually full of star-forming blue, beautiful galaxies. We want to know what's going on. We want to know how they get as big as they get. And we want to know the actual mechanisms to which they fall in together into this huge, huge dark matter halo. We hope that you will join us again. 